Morning, everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPiali.com, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Always glad to be with you. Lots of stuff going on in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. We're bringing back NFL picks. Obviously, tonight is the start of another NFL season, pretty much from here up through the Sunday of the Super Bowl. There's going to be football every weekend. Obviously, the one week that gets missed with the Pro Bowl, but there's still technically is football being played. Obviously, you got MLB pennant races going on. Um, we're going to touch on in a little bit some of the more impactful fighters in the National Hockey League history. And I'll talk a little bit about how that fascinates me, but a reminder that the show belongs to you, so anything that's on your mind, in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America, please let the show know. You could call number 732-364-3598. If you're listening live on Facebook or Periscope, you could drop me a line. Like I said, anything that's on your mind in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. Um, one of the things that I've been the most passionate about, or just as passionate about anything, is my feeling about how the game of Major League Baseball has changed. And the normal responsibilities that we would throw on as a fan or as a member of the media when we criticize and feel it's justly so to criticize a major league manager every single day, every single call, every single thing that does not work right. Over the course of a baseball game, we feel it's our God-given right just because, uh, you know, it's something we were taught. We were taught when we were younger. You know, major league baseball manager, in some cases, get paid a lot of money. You know, they're all compensated enough where they make a good enough living. Obviously, if you look at the modern-day manager, and, you know, you can see a lot of the guys that may not have necessarily had that big-time track record when they took a Major League Baseball manager job. And because of that, they're not being compensated like, let's say, a top coach in the National Football League. Your average coach in the National Football League makes a lot more money than a Major League manager. And part of that is because... What I've said for years now, the castration of the Major League Baseball manager as we know it. His ability to impact a game is so minimized from what it was before, yet we as fans, we as people that cover the game on a day-in and day-out basis believe that if a team has a bad manager, that's going to be the reason that that team loses. Now, while there might be some truth to that, and I'm not going to deny that that's, you know, a fact whatsoever. There's some truth to it. But we are not blaming exactly who it is that needs to be blamed for what's going on. You look at what's worked well for the New York Yankees. It's not Aaron Boone writing a lineup card. It's not Aaron Boone setting up the pitching rotation in the bullpen and figuring what players to rest and what players not to rest. It's a collaborative effort, starting with Brian Cashman as the general manager, you know, Damon Oppenheimer, Josh Bard. There's a ton of people that are involved in the in-game decisions. And we think of a manager that's sitting on a bench and it's just his job to just think, you know, with intuition of what's gonna happen or what could happen. And if he makes a good decision, good for him. If he makes a bad decision, what is he doing? He is the one that's single-handedly rooting this game for the team, for the players, 
for the front office that put together this team. There is a combination now of Major League Baseball front offices that are involved in the in-game decisions. You heard the possibility that general manager Brody Van Wagenen of the Mets was texting manager Mickey Callaway in-game, telling him to take Jacob DeGrom out of the game. Now, he'll never admit that that's true because if it is, it's against the rules. He'd get in trouble for that. But is it so much of a reach that that is going on? And maybe going on a little more than we're willing to give it credit for on a day-in and day-out basis. Our robot managers, we talk about robot umpires, how we'd like to see you know, an electronic strike zone and really doing away with the umpires and the human element in there. Do we have robot managers? Terry Collins said it very clear about how things changed from when he became a major league manager with the Astros in the 1990s to when he managed the New York Mets, especially the last five or so years he was there. He, he used to have to get to the ballpark four or five hours before the game because he'd have to plan the game. He'd have to go through all his relievers. He'd have to figure out which relievers were rested. He'd have to do the research by himself. Sure, he had a coaching staff that was there to help him a little bit, but it was a lot more on the manager to prepare themselves for a game that's going on over the course of the regular season. It's not the case anymore. He, you show up as the manager and your lineup's there. Your lineup's done for you. The relievers that are available, the sequences in which you're going to use certain relievers depending on the situation, the spray charts of where your defensive players are going to play on each one of the batters that are coming up for the opposition is out there written out for you. And your job as the manager is just to implement that game plan. That game plan that, yes, you may have had a little influence in, and I'm not saying the manager has no say in it, but these are things that are being done for them. Yet, and I don't know why this gets me so pissed off, but it seems like it's one of the very few things that I really go off on when it comes to things going on in sports and in baseball. Fans, people in the media, still look at the manager as if they're the ones that are the determining factor of whether a team wins or loses. And it, it's, it's been done to a point where that view has not changed amongst the fan. It has not changed amongst the members of the media. And it's amazing how many people in the media acknowledge the change and acknowledge what's been going on, yet the first thing they say is if the Mets lose a game, is Mickey Callaway screwed up? Or if the Phillies lose a game, it's Gabe Kapler screwed up. Right after you just said that you understand that there's more of a collaborative effort, the coaching staff's involved, the general manager's involved, there's people that are hired within the organization to set up the game plan for the manager to implement. Yet it still comes out, the manager did this, the manager did that. And the bullying of major league managers has existed in a game for years. It used to be a lot more justified. It's not right now. You know what it is? And I hate to sound politically incorrect here, but it, you know, think about the chubby kid in school that gets picked on by the kids in the third grade. Now maybe the third grader's mind is just starting to develop a little bit. He may be having a little fun with the fat kid or you want to talk about somebody that's a little slow, somebody that's not blessed with good looks, somebody that smells bad. And as politically incorrect as it is, we understand that kids are going to be kids. So if a third grader does it, if a third grader picks on somebody that's a little bit different, 
As a parent, you can have a little conversation with them. You can understand that their mind's developing a little bit, but you let them know that it's wrong. The fifth grader does it. After he was doing it as a third grader, you're like, all right, this guy's, uh, you know, this boy or this girl's becoming a little bit of a problem. It's not cool to bully a kid because of his weight, because he might be a little slow, because he might not necessarily have the best looks. But then you get to seventh grade, and you get to ninth grade, and you get to the time where you're an adult. And if you're a grown adult over the age of 18, you know what? You should know better than to bully somebody because of their appearance. And it's pretty obvious. It's pretty matter of fact. Most adults understand that. They say, hey, you know, kids being kids, all right, up to a certain point, you can understand maybe them picking on somebody a little bit. As long as they grow through it and become a, a good adult and don't pick on people when they're that age. Fans and people in the media that bully major league managers are like that grown adult that's still picking on the fat kid. You know, it's like the, the fan that's 42 years old is like still picking on that person next to him because he's a little bit chubbier. Because he's got a couple more pimples and blemishes on their face. When you get to a certain age, it gets old and it looks bad on you. And I'm telling you, for those that are fans of Major League Baseball teams that follow your team day in and day out, and the first thing you got to say after your team loses is, your manager did this, you are the bully. You're the one that's so out of touch that you don't understand that Major League Baseball managers aren't making the decisions. They're implementing a game plan that's given to them by their higher-ups. And they've basically been castrated. They're there as a guidance counselor. They're there to hug their players. And that's why if you see press conferences after managers of teams lose games, it's more of like a building up exercise. You know, your closer blows a big game. The manager's out there saying, listen, I, I do believe in his stuff. I know he didn't make some good pitches, but he's got the talent. He's got the ability to do it. It's not what the fans want to hear. But it's the manager doing his job. His job is to make sure that the 25 players that are on his major league roster that given day, we know the roster changes here and there, are motivated to come to work. Are willing to deal with whatever adversity that they're happening to deal with. The other part of this that frustrates me too, and I'm trying to put this in the best perspective, because out of all the points that I've made on the show, I know a lot of people have gotten some of them. A lot of people agree with some of them. You agree to disagree, but you at least know where I'm coming from. This is the one that people just don't understand. The narrative that's out there that says a Major League Baseball manager is the guy to blame. He's the one to blame if a you know, team loses a game. It's the manager's fault. If the team loses a game, that means you dissect every single thing that happened over the course of the game and you find a way to blame the manager for it. You guys are a bunch of sheep. You are so out of touch with the game of baseball as it is right now. You don't get it. Look at yourself as the flock of sheep that's just following the leader that told you this is the way baseball is played. And because the game of baseball was played like this in 1980 and 1964 and 1950, you are told that the game of baseball is played the same right now. And you, as you're bullying the manager... 
The next time you want to go out there and throw Mickey Callaway's name or Aaron Boone's name or Gabe Kapler's name or Dave Roberts' name or Alex Cora's name or A.J. Hinch's name or any Major League Baseball manager's name to blame them for a loss, just understand that you are part of the flock of sheep. There's a leader that told you that this is the way baseball is supposed to be played, even though that person's wrong. You're sitting there as a sheep, as a member of the sheep flock, and you are following the other sheep. You can't be any more out of touch with Major League Baseball in the way the game is played today. This copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights, granted by the World Wide Web and the solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of pictures, descriptions, and accounts of the show without the express written consent of the past ball show, JohnPLA.com and JohnPLA LLC, is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of programs, such by charging admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So, we're going to jump into NHL, and for those that follow me on Twitter, or even look at maybe my YouTube timeline of things that I like to watch, you'll find that I'm a very big fan of watching NHL hockey fights. And for years, I've followed some of the biggest brawls that we've seen, line brawls, goalie fights. But it's always intrigued me the role that what we call an enforcer or a fighter has on the impact of the sport. Because there's a whole different part of the game of hockey that exists that's so much different from the rest of sports. You think of the other sports and you think of brawls that happen. Let's say Major League Baseball, a guy charges the mound. Basketball, you know, two players go at it. You got the malice in the palace of, you know, Ron Artest going into the crowd. You think of some more of the uglier incidents in sports. Andre Johnson, you know, knocking the F out of Cortland Finnegan's jersey. You know, in that fight years ago, we think of fights in sports and we think of them in a negative way. We think of them having a negative impact on the sport, kind of tarnishing the games that we know and love. Yet, we watch hockey, and it's encouraged, but it's also planned as part of the strategy of the game. Good teams over the course of the history of the National Hockey League have had some of the best fighters and have put that type of player in very much value with their roster. They may play on the fourth line. Some of them have been better as far as hockey players, better skaters, better scorers, better impact players on the offensive side, maybe play a little defense, you know. But the bottom line is they're there to do one thing, and that's to go rough somebody up, that's to hit somebody hard, that's to drop their gloves and go out there and have a, a serious altercation. And that's what I love about hockey, the fact that it is encouraged. And because of this, you've had some of the best fighters that we've seen over the last 30 years or so. And you think of their jobs, and sometimes it's a matter of just finding the other the other guy, the other big guy on a team, squaring up with him and, and throw, throwing hands. And you've seen fights in hockey, energized teams. You've seen the, you know, the, the benches as the players on a bench are smack, smashing their sticks against the, against the side of the, the rink, and it, it's supposed to be motivating. Yeah, it's supposed to happen at certain times. Hey, your team's down by two goals, and your enforcer goes out there and knocks somebody out. You know, you know what? You're going to want to go out there and run through a wall for that team. 
So I think of some of the more controversial fighters of all time. A couple of them stand out because of incidents that they've had on the hockey rink. And I think there is a borderline. There's a borderline between, you know, going out there and knowing that this is the job that you're going to do. You're going to go out there. You're going to, you know, play rough. You're going to hit people hard. You're going to drop your gloves. You're going to fight. Sometimes you're going to win. Sometimes you're going to lose. And then the other aspect of it, when you go full Tug Speedman and Simple Jack, that you become that crazy person, that bad person, that person that just wants to go out there and hurt somebody. And you've seen Marty McSorley do it. You've seen Donald Brashear do it. Guys who had very good careers in the National Hockey League for just dropping their gloves and fighting ended up going overboard. And like I said, when you go full Simple Jack, you end up becoming a symbol of what's wrong as opposed to a symbol of what's right. And I think of a guy like Marty McSorley. He started his career in the early part of the 80s, kind of established himself you know, with the Edmonton Oilers, was traded in a deal that sent Wayne Gretzky to Los Angeles, went to L.A. there where... He played the majority of his career, came back to Pittsburgh, played with a couple teams like the Rangers, San Jose, back to Edmonton, to Boston, and accumulated over the course of his career almost 2,000 penalty minutes. And if you look at, if you're studying hockey and you're watching some of the best fights of all time, I would make a bet that the majority or a good amount of the fights you're going to see are going to include Marty McSorley. So I look at another guy that I, I believe was just as much of an enforcer, but doesn't get the credit that he deserves. And that's Joe Koser. Joe Koser played a long time for the Detroit Red Wings, of course, was part of the New York Rangers team that won the Stanley Cup in 1994. Had a very good career. And in fact, you know, well, obviously I'm going to talk a little bit about Bob Probert, but him and Bob Probert teammates for a while. And they basically set a tone for their time, during their time in Detroit with what they were able to do. It wasn't just one guy that was going to start some, you know, you know what. There, there was two guys. And it was sad when Koser ended up leaving and all of a sudden him and Probert are, are on the other side of the rink and set up against each other and they end up fighting each other. Probably deep down still, you know, respected each other, still liked each other as a person, but understood that that's what they had to do. Joe Koser over the course of his career, which lasted 10 years. It seemed like it lasted a little longer. He seemed like he was a guy that was, you know, was around a little bit longer than he was. But 1,900, just uh, slightly under 2,000 penalty minutes over the course of his career. So the next guy I look at is a guy, unfortunately, is no longer with us. He died in 2010, and that's Bob Prober. And he probably is. He probably is my absolute favorite. When it comes to you know the all-time enforcers, the all-time fighters, because he he totally understood his role, but was an actual hockey player. He wasn't just a goon that went out there and started fights. He was he was a person that did some absolute great things as a fighter and as an enforcer. Over two thousand penalty minutes with just nine years in the NHL playing for. Detroit and Chicago, he had a good career, but he scored 20 goals twice. He scored double figures in goals six times. He was a guy that had a positive plus-minus 
for a handful of years before his latter years with with, uh, with Chicago. He, he was an impactful player on the ice. He did in, instead of just going out there and fighting, which he did a lot of it in, in the peak of his career. He had some of the highest totals of penalty minutes of, of anybody in the history of the National Hockey League. But imagine having 398 penalty minutes, which, by the way, is ridiculous. It doesn't happen too often. But that same year, score 29 goals and 33 assists, have a plus-minus of 16, and make the all-star team. You, know, you don't put all-star spots for people that just drop the gloves. And he set a record or came close to setting a record for most penalty minutes in one season, but a year that he excuse me, also made the all-star team. But Probert, to me, was an all-around player. He reminds me a lot of a, a Gordie Howe. He wasn't what Gordie Howe was. I mean, first of all, Gordie Howe played forever. But Gordie Howe was a scorer first. He'd go out there, he'd get his 50 goals, he'd get his 70, 80 assists every single year, but wanted to make sure that he mixed it up. The Gordie Howe hat trick was the, the goal, the assist, and the fight. And you saw a little of that in Probert, particularly towards the beginning of his career. He was a hockey player. He probably was a hockey player first before he was a fighter. And then over the course of his career, he knew that that was going to keep him around if he wanted to play for a long period of time, if he could keep himself healthy. He knew that he had the ability not just to drop the gloves and, and have a fight with somebody, but to fight smart, to keep the, you know, the, the close corners in, to make sure that your opponent doesn't have a chance to well away at you. Look for your opportunities. And he saw that Prober was probably one of the smarter hockey players, not just, like I said, from an all-around hockey standpoint, but from a fighting standpoint. And you think of some other hockey players, too. And there's a guy by the name of Ty Domi that, you know, his career coincided with really anybody else that I've mentioned, whether it's Koser, Probert, McSorley. And Ty Domi was one of the guys that really took advantage of his ability to be tough, drop the gloves, and fight. A strategic fighter, a guy that knew what he was doing out there. And if you picked the fight with Ty Domi or Ty Domi picked the fight with you and you didn't understand what fighting was about, he would he would rip you. He would destroy you. And Ty Domi ended up having a lengthy or somewhat of a lengthy NHL career, 12 years, 2,265 penalty minutes over the course of his career. But strictly because of his ability to be an enforcer and to be a fighter on the ice. He had, what, we talk about seven, eight, nine seasons where he played in 80 games or more. He managed to stay healthy, which was big, but the importance that he had on the roster of his team to go out there and pick a fight, but also to lay a big hit, to understand that even though this guy is not going to contribute much as far as the score sheet, you're probably going to be under, you know, in regards to plus and minus when he's out on the ice, the impact that he could have from a physicality standpoint warranted him being out there for the majority of the time. And he didn't see that happen too often. And the last guy I want to talk about is Donald Brashear. Brashear, over the course of his career, accumulated more penalty minutes than anybody that I just mentioned. And you look at some of his fights against Bob Prober, were probably some of the classic fights of all time. And if you think about it, 
you know, there's really very few rivalries that parallel. Sure, you can grab the five players that I just mentioned amongst being the top enforcers and top fighters of all time and, you know, talk about the amount of fights that they have between them. I'm sure every combination of those five fighters or hockey players fought each other multiple times. But Donald Brashear was, was a guy that managed to get some length over the course of his career. He played, what, 16 years in the NHL. None of the other guys I mentioned managed to have that much stamina to be able to compete and play for as long of a period of time. Excuse me. Now, Brashear was never much of a scorer. Never had a season over the course of his career. I think one year, I'd say, where he was plus five. But for the rest of his career was either zero or below in regards to plus and minus. But he managed to give himself a career back. And I think that's pretty fascinating. You look at some of the enforcers, some of the top hockey players to ever play the game, and we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about the enforcers and the fighter. And I think it's pretty fascinating to look at because it's a whole dimension of a sport that doesn't get enough credit. We talk about you know the importance that should exist amongst you know physicality and being a tough guy, being an enforcer. It's important in other sports, but when you look at fights, they're black marks. They are not perceived as a positive thing when you see them in other sports. The NHL is the only sport where it's praised. I think it's time you look at guys like McSorley, like Brashear, like Domi, like Probert, like Koser, and start giving them some of the respect that they deserve. This is the famous Budweiser beer. We know no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste of smoothness and drinkability you'll find in no beer at any cost. So within the next couple days or so, I'll, I'll throw this up on johnpaley.com in case you want to look at it. Um, I'll share it through my past ball show page on Facebook. So you'll be able to see it on Twitter. You'll be able to see it uh, on forms of social media. Um, I just did my predictions for the NFL season, which, of course, gets started tonight where you got the Green Bay Packers traveling to Chicago to play the Bears. And for those of you that love the sport of football, you know it's exciting. It's like uh, a whole new leaf has been turned. You could have, Your team could have had the worst season last year, but like I always say about football, the parity exists in a sport. You can go out there and regardless of expectations, win your first two games and build off the momentum of that. And at a certain point, you know, the cream doesn't necessarily have to rise to the top because momentum swings from week to week. And that team that's 5-0, and 6-0, and 6-1, 7-1, and 7-2, 8-2, 9-2, and may not have necessarily had that expectation to do that, starts to believe that they're that good team. And what happens when a bad team or a projected bad team does well, it always comes at the expense of somebody else, which we know that happens in all sports. There's only a certain amount of wins, certain amount of losses you're going to see over the course of a football season or, or the season of any sport for that matter. But you, know, you talk about 32 teams in the National Football League that all have a legitimate chance. You know, Some of them, I, I guess you talk about their top uh, achieving goal could be to win a Super Bowl. Some of them might be to finish with a winning record or a, a 500 record. Some of them might be to get to the playoffs. Some of them 
might be able to pick a couple games up on what they did last year, but we know the sky is the limit. And the chances of individual teams, you can talk about the teams that have the best chance to win a Super Bowl, probably not as many as some other. But when it comes to competing, when it comes to beating a team or being able to win a football game on a week in and week out basis, you know anything can happen. So, you know, without further ado, here's my picks in the American Football Conference 2019, which will, of course, will turn into 2020 by the time the playoffs start. I don't have any surprise with the New England Patriots. I think they're going to be 10 and 6 this year. I think they may take a little bit of a step back, but they're going to win the AFC East Division. Not breaking any ground there. AFC North. I got the Pittsburgh Steelers finishing at 12 and 4. A lot of talk is about the Cleveland Browns. I do think, you know, Baker Mayfield, Odell Beckham, Kareem Hunt joining the team at some point in the year. They got Chubb, they got Landry, they, they got a good defense out there, they do. This is a good team that has developed itself over the last series of years and has gotten better. I, I think we're going a little crazy when we're talking about the Cleveland Browns being a legitimate power in the AFC. So I got the Steelers at 12-4 and four winning that division. AFC South, I think I, I, was, I wasn't different from a lot of other people when I was really believing in Indianapolis this year. I liked what I saw at them towards the end of last season, the winning week 17 against Tennessee. You know, the way that they played in the playoffs, they fought, they looked like a good football team. They looked like a team that really turned a corner. Now, I'm not going to say that they're out of it. I'm not going to say that they are diminished, but obviously they are a different team with Jacoby Brissett as a quarterback as opposed to Andrew Luck. So give me the Houston Texans at 10-6 and six, winning the AFC South. AFC West, I'm going to go with the team that I have with the best record in the AFC, it's going to be the Kansas City Chiefs, who I predict will finish 13-3. and Them and the Pittsburgh Steelers will have first-round buys. The wild-card teams will be the Los Angeles Chargers. And here you go. Here's my reach for the season. I'm going to go with the New York Jets, making the playoffs at 10-6. and We'll see how that ends up working out over in the National Football Conference. I got the Dallas Cowboys winning the NFC East with a 10-6 record. No shock there. Um, Philadelphia is going to give them a good fight. We know probably to, to you know uh, dampen perhaps our expectations of the New York football giants. The Washington Redskins, I don't think they're going to be very good either. Minnesota Vikings, I think, are a good bounce-back team. I see them finishing 12-4 and and winning the NFC North. New Orleans Saints, 13-3. I got them winning the NFC South. And I'm going to go with a little bit of a surprise in the West. Los Angeles Rams, big season last year, getting to the Super Bowl. I think there's a little bit of a Super Bowl hangover. I think, you know, sometimes when your warts are kind of exposed, which they were in the Super Bowl when the Patriots kind of picked on them a little bit, you know, all of a sudden you kind of fall off your pedestal. Your, you know, your, your little soapbox where you feel like you are so good, now you're exposed. Now it's up to Sean McVay and that coaching staff at the Los Angeles Rams to figure out how to get over what happened last year. And I look at Seattle, I think that they're a team that is hung under their radar over the last couple of years. I think they could go out there, go 11-5, and five, win the NFC West. So I got the Cowboys, the Vikings, the Saints, and the Seahawks with the Saints and the Vikings getting home field. My two wildcard teams give me Green Bay at 11-5 and, 
and I'll take Philadelphia at 10 and 6 as my other wild card spots. Like I said, we'll pop these up on johnpla.com and you know, share them through social media. Comment, let me know what your picks are. And yeah, let's have some fun. Now, as we get set for a great segment of the show that I'm always happy to bring back, we have our NFL picks, which we're going to get the music going as we enter... As we enter what we call a new season in the National Football League. I'm going to do a bonus game this week because the excitement that's got to exist amongst the football fan. Football is coming back tonight. Bears, Packers. Bears coming off of a very good season. A season that you really got to respect where they came from. The Quill Mac trade, some of the moves that they made as they got a little more aggressive. They got a little more aggressive as the season went on, looked at themselves as a legitimate playoff team. Probably could have and should have beat the Philadelphia Eagles if it wasn't for the double doink and Cody Parkey. I got them playing at home against the Green Bay Packers, but I believe in the Packers. The Packers have done a lot to improve their defense. And I think they're going to be motivated for this game. They're going to be motivated to look at the Bears, a team that kind of had their way in the division last year. People were thinking Packers should have done the job last year. They didn't. They had a bad season. Aaron Rodgers was hurt. Aaron Rodgers, if he's healthy, could very well lead that team to a deep run in the playoffs. And I like the line on this. Bears are picked by three. Give me Green Bay on the road plus three at Chicago. We're going to do five games every week. We're going to do the bonus because we're going to do the Thursday game this week. So I'll give you five more games real quick. We'll do a quick recap, recap of the show and then get the hell out of here. First game we're going to go at, Atlanta, traveling to Minnesota. I think Minnesota is a very good bounce-back candidate. You look at the division they're in, we just talked about the Bears, talked about the Green Bay Packers. I can see the Vikings and the Packers battling for this division and maybe the Bears falling behind. Maybe we forget about the Detroit Lions. They can go out there and surprise a little bit. But Atlanta, a lot of injuries last year. Defense was terrible last year. they got to make some serious improvements if they're going to get themselves back on pace to be a, a you know, prohibitive favor and get the playoffs again. I think Minnesota's got a lot on their plate, but they also have a lot to prove. They want to come out there this week and show that last year was an aberration. You know, the year before where they had the Super Bowl in their own building and they came, you know, within a, a small break of being able to get there. It didn't happen. You know, the Eagles whooped on them in the championship game a couple years ago. They got a lot to prove. Give me Minnesota minus four at home against Atlanta. I'm going to go with an upset here because I believe that there is a lot of hype in concern with the Cleveland Browns. And a lot of people will start jumping on the bandwagon if they win week one. If they win in week two, they win in week three, all of a sudden they're going to become the darlings of the National Football League. Baker Mayfield and Odell Beckham, probably in comparisons to two of the better heels if we're going to go WWE here. And people love the heels just as much as they love the stars. We know that. I got the Tennessee Titans under the radar. I see them finishing last place in their division, 8-8. Eight eight. Uh, you know, you look at Houston and Jacksonville and Indianapolis, I think they're all superior teams. But I think the Titans will have their day on the road this week. Three and a half points 
Tennessee is getting. So Tennessee plus three and a half at Cleveland. Next game, Cleveland and Jacksonville. Jacksonville, another team that has a lot to prove this year. They want to kind of prove to the rest of you know, the fan base in the National Football League that they are a legitimate contender. I think they're going to have a good season. They're going to have a winning season. And it's going to start this week at home against Kansas City. I, if there's a team that I think could go out there and lay a stinker, a letdown, I think it's the Kansas City Chiefs who should be able to expect themselves to go out there and win every week and perhaps say that this is the year that they should go out there and be able to win themselves a Super Bowl, get to the Super Bowl as we hit what we'll call the concluding point here in the passball show today. I can see the Chiefs, at least for one week, taking a step back. The Titans, I'd say, hey, for one week they're going to look good. Give me the, the Jacksonville Jaguars at home, plus three and a half against the Kansas City Chiefs. Last two games will go through quickly. Indianapolis is uh, traveling to Los Angeles to play the Chargers. And I think people are going to be dismissing the Indianapolis Colts. You know, a team that built a great offensive line. I think it's going to benefit Jacoby Brissett. Yes, he's not Andrew Luck. I think the defense is a little bit better. I think this is a team that should end up still having a winning record in spite of not having luck around. Probably a Super Bowl candidate with luck, but I think they could be in a mix for a playoff spot. They're on the road. They're at Los Angeles. They're getting six and a half points, and I think that line is contingent on the fact that Andrew Luck ain't there. and The betters are going to bet against you know, Jacoby Brissett. I think the Colts are going to show up this week. Give me Indianapolis 6.5 at Los Angeles against the Chargers. Last game, two teams that aren't getting a lot of love, aren't getting a lot of attention. Talking about the Detroit Lions and the Arizona Cardinals. You know the Arizona Cardinals of the season that they had last year really couldn't have gone any worse. They were blessed or they got themselves a chance to trade up to get the 10th overall pick so they could get Josh Rosen. And the season just went so poorly for them. They went 2-14. Steve Wilkes and his coaching staff fired after one season. They get the number one pick. They draft Kyler Murray. Out goes Josh Rosen after just a part of a season. And they're at home playing the Detroit Lions. And, you know, listen, Arizona, I think, is going to grow a little bit. They're going to have a chance to grow with their quarterback, maybe get a little bit better. I think they could have a better season this year than they had last year. But I think Detroit should be able to go out there and win. This is a game that if the Detroit Lions want to be legitimate, if they want to be given credit, if they want to be considered a team that could potentially compete in the National Football Conference and the North Division, they're going to have to beat a team like the Arizona Cardinals. And I think they will. This will be a lopsided game. Give me Detroit minus three, I'm sorry, minus two and a half at Arizona against the Cardinals. So Thursday night game, Green Bay plus three at Chicago. The five Sunday games, Minnesota minus four at home against Atlanta. Tennessee plus three and a half at Cleveland. Jacksonville plus three and a half at home against Kansas City. Indianapolis plus six and a half at Los Angeles against the Chargers. And Detroit minus two and a half at Arizona. A little bit of a recap of the show today. I do want to remind everybody that Castrol provides maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown. Castrol, engineered for today's smaller cars. Manager bullies. I'm going to compare you to two things. 
First of all, I'm going to tell you you're out of touch. You don't understand the game of Major League Baseball as it's being played now. How the game has changed over the course of years. You don't understand it. You don't get it. It's okay. I get that you don't get it. But at some point, it might make some sense to get back in touch. Manager bullies. I compare them to the grown adult that's still picking on the fat kid. That's still picking on the kid that's a little bit slow. That's picking on the kid that's a little bit ugly. When you're in your 40s, you got to grow up. you got to grow past things like that. If you're a Major League Baseball manager bully, yeah, you, you are a bully. And also, the statement, the narrative, that the manager is the guy to blame. All you are is sheep. You're a sheep, you're a sheep in a flock following the leader doing just what you're told. You ain't using a shred of your brain because you're so out of touch with baseball. You're just sheep. Top NHL fighters of all time. Give me Bob Probert. Give me Donald Brashear. Give me Marty McSorley. Joe Koser. Ty Domi. Anybody else that you want to throw out there, you know, at me in the comments or on Twitter or whatever. NFL picks, they'll be up on JohnPielli.com. Thank everybody for tuning in. Excited, just like many other people, the start of the National Football League season. Go Packers. Go Bears. We'll see you next week. This is the Passball Show brought to you by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located on Naog Avenue in Scranton, Pennsylvania. The number, if you're interested, 570-881-17 by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, located on 935 Bennett's Mills Road. Obviously, school's starting, so uh, you, know, you can check out all their information at stalwishes.org. We'll be back with you next week. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.